Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Jonathan Gould joins Nate for the first of two episodes discussing his book, Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life. In this episode... Jonathan and Nate cover the youth of Otis Redding in segregation-era Georgia, his beginnings in music, his discovery by Stax Records, his management, and an early brush with crime. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome, this is Nate Wilcox, joined by Jonathan Gould, author of Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Nate. Cool. And this is a, a, a really remarkable biography. I, I enjoyed it tremendously. And I thought you did a, a great job of placing Otis Redding's work in the context of his time and place. And so let's start a little bit talking about Macon, Georgia, and Monroe County, Georgia, where Otis's family came from uh, bef- in his before his, he was born. His parents and grandparents came from Monroe and moved to Macon. I mean, describe for the audience just how brutal a place and time that was for African-Americans. Well, um, to put it very simply, it was the, it was the Jim Crow South. Um, Otis's family grew up in, 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 in rural Georgia. And what that meant essentially was that, um, you know, this is, this is, this is a world um, we, uh, we, we hear more and more about now um, than people did at the time. I think it's fair to say, but, uh, it was when I say it was the Jim Crow South. It, uh, we tend to think of that as, as a um, as a kind of static condition. But um, one of the points that that I try to make in the book, and 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 that I think uh, we tend to think about, we tend to forget today, is that um, conditions in, in the South for, for African American people during much of the first half of the 20th century only got worse and worse. Um, the rest of the country uh, was uh, uh, advancing in various ways, um, economically and, and to some extent socially and culturally. But for blacks in the South, um, they were excluded from all of that. Um, so Otis's parents um, began as sharecroppers. Uh, they wanted a better life for their for, the, for their family. They had they had they had produced three daughters and then a son, which was Otis. And so um, they moved from uh, uh, well, they they moved to Macon, Georgia, uh, during World War II because Macon, the economy in Macon was booming on account of on account of the Second World War. Um, there were a lot of uh, defense contractors and things like that there. And Otis's father was able to get a uh, a job at, a, at an Air Force base that had, or an Army Air Force base that had opened south of Macon. Um, but one of the things that 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 uh, I had to realize uh, about, I had to understand about uh, Otis and, and his family was the sense of aspiration that uh, that they had. Um, these were people who had very limited opportunities, but were trying to take every one of them to improve the lives of their own lives and the lives of their kids. Um, and that attitude, I think, was uh, was communicated to Otis and, and and acted out by Otis over the course of his his brief life. 
Yeah, definitely. And and one thing, there were two things that your book really brought home for me about the racial context that Otis Redding came from. And and one was a sort of obvious factual matter that had never occurred to me, which was Otis was exactly the same age as Emmett Till, who was horrifically yeah. murdered uh, in a lynching in, in 1955 uh, near Memphis. And, you know, we think of Otis Redding as this integrated figure, you know, triumphing with white audiences in England and at Monterey Pop and playing with an integrated band at Booker T and the MGs. But that really brought home the context that Otis grew up in. And, you know, and as tragic as it is that we lost Otis when he was so young, just imagine, you know, what we would have lost if we had, what we could have lost if we lost him when he was 15. And, And it makes you think of what you lose you know, when children and whole generations of African-Americans had their lives truncated. Well, sure. You know, and and, look, you know, go ahead. The the fact that Otis was the same age as Emmett Till only, I mean, the the reason I I sort of made a point of of that, that comparison in the book, aside from the fact that it was true, was just to give some sense of the vulnerability uh, of, 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 uh, especially a, a young, a young black man. Um, in this culture, uh, of course, you know, we, we have experienced, uh, um, Trayvon Martin and things like that. So we hardly need to be reminded of that, but the, 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 um, the threat to somebody, uh, like Otis as he was growing up, um, and you know, this became, this became only more pronounced as he started to, uh, as he became a performer and started to move into a world where he was playing for white audiences and interacting with that, with white people. Um, and that's essentially the reason that I, that I, uh, you know, that, that I made that, made that comparison, I guess is what I'm saying. But uh, there's one thing that I really, uh, that I, I feel it's important for me to say, you know, I, I grew up in New York city in, in what I would describe as privileged, uh, circumstances. And for me, writing this book, um, I don't want to come across as, as I don't want to come across as, as, you know, somebody with, with some kind of great expertise, um, about uh, about the experience of, of, of African Americans in the rural South. This book was my education, uh, you know, in that subject, and um, uh, it was it was the, the main thing that I, that I really understood was that much of the way that uh, race has been written about in relation to popular music uh, by white writers like myself, uh, uh, to a large extent. Um, has been has been missing a lot of the dimensions of what the lives of, of African American performers were actually like, um, and and talking about something like Emmett Emmett Till is is, is one version of it, is is one aspect of the the the, the danger that that um, uh, they were navigating that that an African American was 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 navigating uh, if if he or she wanted to have any kind of a, a public life. But the subtler aspect of it had to do simply with the idea, um, which I came to understand, that, um, you know, a a, a black man in the South could not be forthright uh, with white people about anything that he was thinking or saying. Um, He had to be careful at all times. Um, And I guess, you know, for me, the, the, the... the sort of critical aspect or the, the, the critical sort of example of that um, in this book is um, there's a description in the book of, of Otis's meeting with his with his uh, future white manager, Phil Walden, um, in Macon. And Phil was instrumental in, 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 in uh, Otis's career. And we'll, we'll get to that. But, um, you know, Phil's reaction when he first met Otis was, as, as he described it, you know, in retrospect, um, he thought they hit it off instantly. And when I came across that quote from him, by that time, I was educated enough about the world that I was writing about to understand that there was no way that a, um, at least from Otis's point of view, that uh, uh, um, uh, a 17-year-old black man and a 21-year-old white white man in Macon, Georgia in in, uh, 1959 could hit it off instantly. Um, that was Phil's idea of what was going on. Um, Otis's idea of what was going on was much more complicated than that. And that, that's the sort of, um, you know, that's, that's the day-to-day uh, navigation that, that we're really talking about um, in relation to um, 
uh, Otis and everybody else of his generation, every other African-American of his generation in the South. Yeah, and I thought you did a really good job of capturing the nuances of the relationship between Otis and especially the Walden family, but but you know many of the white business people that he dealt with. But before we get to that, I want to get to the to the second factor that you really helped clarify my thinking, which is the role of minstrelsy, which you know is the whole school of American music, basically popular American music in the 19th century. Stephen Foster, America's first great songwriter, all the way up sure. to you know, Al Jolson that you called, you know, the Elvis Presley of the 1910s and 20s. Right. And as a music fan, you know, I can't resist Foster's beautiful melodies. And when I see Jolson's charismatic performances, even though they don't obviously come across as powerfully, you know, on newsreel footage and, and old silent movies as they would have on stage, I've always sort of been sympathetic to that music and given it given it the most positive sort of interpretation. But your account of it and the way you describe its role in part of a cultural propaganda effort that rolled back the progress of Reconstruction and sets up the increasingly oppressive systems of Jim Crow the massive lynchings, the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, really clarified. And there's a passage uh, in your first chapter where you compare, um, you, I'm going to read the whole passage. Yet while the outcomes were drastically different, the ascendancy of African-American popular music in the second half of the 20th century was characterized by many of the same patterns and paradoxes that applied to the mass popularity of Stephen Foster's minstrel songs in the second half of the 19th century. So much so, this could have been seen as another example of history repeating itself, first as tragedy, but then an an inspiring twist on Marx's dictum as triumph rather than farce. I, I just thought that was beautiful and sums up why Otis Redding means so much in in the history of American culture. And just comment on that passage and how you came to that well, insight. Sure. I mean and of course Otis is is is, is one part of it. Uh, there 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 are dozens of other people who, who contributed to that that triumphant uh uh reversal of, of things. I think that the 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 sort of the central point about minstrelsy is that um, it created or, or it institutionalized the stereotypes um, with which that that white people would project onto black people in this country, um, it, and, and turned it into a form of entertainment. Um, and minstrelsy was 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 it was a, it was a very sort of um, uh, it was a very structured sort of sort of form of entertainment in the sense of it was on the one hand it was outlandish, but on the other hand there were there were there was a, a kind of formal aspect to it, and so by assigning um, these roles um, and 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 the two roles that I talk about and and these these words are not fun to use but the two roles that I talk about are the the, the sort of the urban coon as it was described and of course there was a whole genre in the 1890s of what, what were called coon songs right um, who was uh, who was a portrayal of, of of a black person in the north um, and uh, showed him to be or it was almost always male showed him to be this fish out of water who was making this pathetic attempt to try to uh, adapt to the norms of, of white society and, and, and dress according to the norms of white society. And this, uh, in other words, the, this ridiculous figure in that regard. So that was the comedy of minstrelsy. And then the, the other famous sort of minstrel stereotype was that of, of, of the Sambo, um, the, the, the Southern black man, um, who only, you know, this is what, what, what Stephen Foster made most famous, who only wanted to get back to the old plantation, so to speak, who loved his, his state as a sort of childlike figure, who loved his state of dependency, loved his massa and, you know, this whole idea. Um, and since most Americans uh, had very little contact, or excuse me, most Americans in the North, which is where minstrelsy started, had very little contact with actual black people. Um, minstrelsy was the thing that educated, uh, in a matter of speaking, the rest of the country to, uh, for better or worse, who African-American people were. And those are the stereotypes that, that come down to the present day. I mean, we, we, we still haven't transcended those things. Um, 
but then this in in this this bizarre um, kind of way that our that our popular culture works um, after emancipation, during Reconstruction, uh, the phenomenon came, uh, began to uh, uh, develop of black minstrelsy, which is to say, uh, emancipated uh, African Americans who made careers. Um, in this, in, 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 you know, in, in the minstrel genre of popular entertainment. And the thing that struck me so strongly about when I, when I started to understand that had to do with the fact that people said exactly the same thing about black minstrels as they said about um, R&B performers in the, in, in the 50s and 60s, that they were the real thing <laughs> with the way it was described. Um, and the idea being that yes, we've we've been used to this sort of this sort of white um, uh, imitation, uh, which is which is of course on an economic level the the the, the main the, the main aspect of the business, uh, you know. But um, here was the real thing. Here was the authentic um, minstrel sort of performer. And in addition to that, yeah, I mean, just uh, these were people who were trying to make a living. Um, the black minstrels of, of the 1880s and 1890s, they began doing things like writing spirituals, uh, <laughs> newly written spirituals that were designed to sound like, um, uh, you know, traditional uh, black worship songs and things like that. So the, the main point, I guess, I'm, I've been trying to make is that this dance, um, based on the fascination, for the most part, of white people with black people, with white people with black culture. Um, you know, has been going on in our country since the early 19th century, not before that. And when we look at at, at something like the the uh, what 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 happened um, in the 1950s and 60s with the, with the rise of, of of black performers like Otis Redding, who were able to have their own autonomous careers, you have to you have to you have to um, take that legacy, I guess, into account is the best way to put it. Absolutely. And at this point, I want to uh, introduce our first song of the, the show, Otis's uh, third single, Pain in My Heart, which was his breakthrough with the uh, head man at Stax Records, Jim Stewart. And, and we'll talk about Otis and his relationship uh, with Stax after this song. Pain in my heart, treating me oh, oh. And that was Pain in My Heart, which was Otis's, Otis Redding's third single for Stax Volt. Um, and, and you talk about the discovery myth of Otis Redding, and there's two different versions of it. Uh, you know, we lost Otis before he could really do any retrospective interviews about his career, so we don't really know how Otis saw it. But we know that um, Steve Cropper, who was the guitarist and arranger for Booker T and the MGs and, and so many of the Stax records, he felt that Otis Otis broke through with him at his first recording session with Stax, which wasn't even an Otis Redding session. And and I'd like to talk a little bit about the Pete Best of the Otis Redding story, Johnny Jenkins, who was the left-handed guitar player uh, that that went to Memphis to record at Stax. And Otis was his valet and sometimes lead singer, but in an act that featured instrumental music. Talk about Johnny Jenkins and how Otis sort of he didn't push him aside, but, you know, took sure. his place. Well, <clears throat> aside from his performances at talent shows and things like that in Macon, and then um, a very brief tour that he did, uh, or at least we think that he did, as um, uh, uh, as a substitute for Little Richard with Little Richard's band. Otis is real sort of the, the beginning of, of, of what could be described as a professional career. Started as as, as a singer um, in, in a band called Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, and Jenkins was a, a flamboyant uh, left-handed guitarist um, who um, uh, we don't really know how good a guitarist he was, but what everybody agrees about it is that he was he was an arresting performer. Um, and uh, his uh, the only problem with him was he wasn't much of a singer. So um, he basically took Otis on as, as the singer in, in, in his group, and they played mainly um, high school and college fraternity cakes um, uh, in, in central Georgia, ranging over to Atlanta, going as far as, as, as um, you know, Old Miss and, and Alabama and, and 
so on and so forth. Um, but that was that was their their circuit. And on that circuit, um, Johnny Jenkins was this phenomenon. And um, Jenkins was managed by Phil Walden, who in the early days um, thought that Johnny Jenkins was his ticket to uh, to success. Um, it took a while for Phil, despite the fact that he got along very well with Otis, to recognize that that Otis was really the um, the more talented person in this group, or, or the person in this group with with, with much greater potential. Um, and the, the other figure that, that has to be introduced into the narrative at this point was this extraordinary character named Joe Galkin, who um, had had a long career in the music business as a big band trumpeter and as a, as a manager of a, of a of a sort of sweet swing orchestra, um, but who fell on ha- hard times. Galkin grew up in Macon, but moved to New York to pursue his career in the music business um, and uh, fell on hard times in New York and went back to Atlanta and set himself up um, in the in, in the mid 50s as basically the first independent uh, promo record promo man in in the country in the world. He invented this this job in a certain way, and he would work freelance for um, all of the big New York record companies. So anyway, it was Galkin who um, heard uh, 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 heard a record um, by uh, 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 Johnny Jenkins on on the radio, uh, an instrumental record uh, called Love Twist, which was made uh, to capitalize on the the twist craze. Of the uh, of the early 1960s, this would have been 1961 and 62. Um, Galkin heard this this record on the radio, found out that he was managed by Phil that uh, um, Johnny was managed by Phil Walden, got in touch with Phil Walden, basically took Walden under his wing, and together they came up with this plan. And the plan was that um, uh, Galkin was familiar with this fledgling record company in Memphis called Stax Records. Um, he was also familiar with the fact that Galkin had great commercial ears. He was one of these people who could listen to a record and know that it was going to be a success, uh, or at least that was his, um, that, that's what he thought about himself. And he was, he was right about it uh, a lot of the time. And he had just heard a record, um, uh, uh, actually from a, a, a record distributor at Atlanta that, that, that he, he used to, uh, to sort of scope out uh, coming attractions. Um, which uh, was Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. And Golkin heard this record, and it, it really wasn't out on the radio yet, but he knew it was going to be a big hit. And so he came up with this idea to bring Johnny Jenkins to Memphis to record with Booker T and the MGs, to record an instrumental album for Atlantic Records. He called up Jerry Wexler, who was the vice president of Atlantic Records and a legendary figure in the music business and a good friend of Galkin's, and got a, uh, some kind of an advance um, from, from Wexler to uh, cover the cost of the session at Stax. Um, Wexler, by the way, had been cultivating a relationship with Stax, so he was happy to do this. Um, and the second part of the plan called uh, for Otis Redding to drive Johnny to Memphis. And uh, by this time, Galkin, not so much Walden, but Galkin had come to the conclusion that uh, that Otis was 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 the real talent in this in this sort of uh, uh, in this band, Um, because after all, uh, instrumental records were fairly successful, had 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 a kind of heyday in the early 1960s. But there was always a limit to how far anybody was going to go with that kind of a thing. So. the plan called for Otis to drive Johnny to, uh, to, to, to Memphis for Johnny to record this album with Stax. And at some point in the, in the session, Galkin was going to point out to Jim Stewart, who was the owner and uh, sort of engineer and everything else at that Stax, that Otis was, was the singer in Johnny's band and, and, and could they maybe do a demo on him? Uh, everything went off according to plan, except for the fact that um, when, when, when Johnny started working with Booker T and the MGs in, in this session, um, they were not particularly impressed with, with him or with his material. Uh, and Johnny, who uh, had a very fragile alcoholic ego, kind of went to pieces in this session. And at a certain point, Jim Stewart said, you know what, I, I can't make a record with this guy. Um, they did record a couple of tracks, and one of them was released about two years later. It was a remake of the of, of the song that Galkin had heard on the on, on the radio. Um, 
And so at that point, and I think all of these details are fairly agreed upon by everybody who was there. Um, at that point, uh, everybody, the musicians in the studio started to pack up and leave. Stewart had ended the session. Golkin pointed out to him that Atlantic Records was paying for this session and that there was still time on the clock. And this was his opportunity to say that uh, Otis was, was a singer and could they, could they give him a shot? And uh, I think that the main sort of point of contention is that um, when Otis was given an opportunity to sing, uh, the first song he sang was one of his uh, Little Richard imitations, which was not all that impressive. But the second song he sang was a ballad that um, a, uh, a colleague of his, an associate of his named Jackie Avery, had written about three years before and sort of bequeathed to, Ot uh, to Otis. Uh, I don't know that Jackie was aware that he bequeathed it to Otis, but he, he had. And this was the ballad, um, These Arms of Mine. And the main point of contention is that Cropper's feeling was that the moment I started singing this song, um, he was, Cropper was just completely blown away by his singing. Um, Stewart, on the other hand, thought it was kind of interesting, but didn't think it was particularly, particularly impressive. Um, and what then happened was that, uh, what wound up happening was, but it, Stewart thought it was, was good enough to put out as a record. Um, what then happened was something that happened constantly in Jim Stewart's uh, career as a, as a record producer, which is that he initially wanted to put out the Little Richard imitations, the A side of a single. And everybody uh, in the band, beginning with Crocker, had to convince him that no, 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 the, uh, the ballad was the, was, was, was the A side of the single. The ballad was the strong cut. And um, they did release it. And uh, despite this kind of Hollywood circumstances of this, of this audition, um, it was not an instant hit. Uh, it didn't you know, take over the radio, but it was a very sort of consistent presence on the radio for the next uh, so eight months, I guess you could say. Um, uh, stations kept playing it. Uh, people kept buying it. And it became, uh, on the basis of that, a sort of, sort of slow-baked uh, minor hit in that way. And that's essentially the way Otis, Otis became established um, at Stax. Um, and um, not only at Stax, but because Stax was affiliated with Atlantic Records in New York with the whole Atlantic record operation, which was probably along with, which along with Motown was the great R&B record company of that time. And this starts a string of hard on the sleeve ballads that that Otis Redding yeah. does, and it and it earns him a nickname with DJs. And this cues up our next song. Uh, they started calling him Mr. Pitiful, and he sure. and Steve Crawford then uh, collaborate to write a song called Mr. Pitiful, and and this is right. Mr. Pitiful. And that was Mr. Pitiful, a collaboration between Otis Redding and Stax Records' major domo, Steve Cropper. Tell us about that song and how it took Otis into a new realm. You, you call it into the realm of romantic comedy. Well, sure. Uh, first of all, um, uh, the important thing about Mr. Pitiful, which was, which was uh, 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 a successful radio song, is that uh, Otis began as a ballad singer. And... Um, uh, he had not been a ballad singer, particularly before that, be, be, before these arms of mine became his signature. Um, but what people do in the record business is they go with whatever is successful. And so um, his first three records uh, that, that he recorded at Stax Singles, we're talking about here, were all ballads. Um, the important thing about Mr. Pitiful was it was the first what we would call a, a groove song um, that he did. Uh, that is to say, it, 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 it was a song that took advantage of uh, the, the Stax band, Booker T and the NGs, which was one of the great studio bands of, of the 1960s. Um, they, they did two things extraordinarily well. They played slow extraordinarily well, and they played fast extraordinarily well. Uh, when I say they played slow, their, their timing and their, their, their whole sense of restraint 
um, on ballots was extraordinary. And when the, well, I say they played fast really well, actually, they played fast really well by not playing fast. Um, they brought that same sense of restraint to up-tempo dance songs. Uh, and this is the reason that, that uh, I mean, that they, are, they are to this day kind of the gold standard of, of, of what a certain type of funky record is. And this was, this was, this was the achievement of this extraordinary studio band. Um, nobody else sounded like them until everybody else tried to start sounding like them in this way. Um, and Mr. Pitiful is, 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 is one of the, the first songs, certainly with Otis, um, on which they were able to sort of put that sound together. Um, the element of romantic comedy uh, that I'm talking about is that, you know, one of the interesting things about, about uh, R&B in general uh, is that um, R&B, of course, is derived from the blues. And while there's an element of comedy uh, in the blues, um, the blues, for the most part, um, the, the rural blues particularly, but also the urban blues of people like Bessie Smith and so on, um, this was a kind of tragic medium, uh, rightfully so, after all, given the, the, the well of experience that it came from. But it was in, in, in the late 40s and early 50s, um, beginning particularly with the, with the, with the R&B uh, singer Louis Jordan, um, R&B took on a different, a, a different sort of cast in terms of the way it, it presented male-female relations, uh, romantic relations. Um, it started to pre- present them much more in a, in, a, in a comedic way rather than a tragic way. And um, so in this case, in the case of Mr. Pitiful, um, I mean, here's a song in which Otis is, is sort of wallowing in, in, his, in his self-pity. Um, but it's, it's not done, uh, it's not done seriously. It's done as a joke on himself. And, um, not only that, but, but it's also, uh, uh, done as a bit, I mean, in, in the context of the song, it's done as a kind of, as a kind of romantic strategy in, in the sense that this is a song in which somebody's presenting himself as just, just, you know, sort of uh, so down, so pitiful. So, uh, and, and the invitation of course is, 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 is for anybody he's singing it to, 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 to take him out of that situation in one way or another, to feel sorry for him and, 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 and to take him on. So that's, that's the element. And I, I would say, for the most part, that that feeling of romantic comedy um, stayed with Otis uh, in, in, in sort of, again, it's, it's always a bit of a shock when you start to say for his whole career. But of course, we're only talking about a few years, but during the full course of his short career. Absolutely. And and that confidence and ability to laugh at himself a little bit and and it starts with the ability to put his heart on his sleeve which many black performers have been reluctant sure. to do uh and then to to double up you know by making fun of himself i i think i want to connect it to you know his working with an integrated band co-writing with a white guy and then being managed in a very close relationship not just by phil walden but the whole walden family because Phil Walden was uh, committed to the army and and suddenly disappeared, basically, fairly early on in his career. And his younger brother, Alan, had to step up because the plan was for their father, CB, to take over. But CB had a sudden stroke. And this gets into the story of the Walden family and Otis, which I think you tell very well. And there's there's sort of three incidents I want to I want to cover. The first is what you call the splendid gesture. And this is something that Otis did for Phil pretty early on in their relationship when Phil came up short with the tuition money for his next semester at college, you know, the president of his fraternity, popular big man on campus, and he's going to come up short and he confides in Otis this vulnerability and Otis's response really shocks him. And you tie it to the Southern tradition of the splendid gesture. What did Otis do in that circumstance? Well, again, this is going back to before any before Otis uh, was a recording star when he was when he was playing in in, in these in, this, in, in these paternity bands. But um, uh, Phil was strapped for his college tuition. Um, there was a certain element in their relationship uh, that was that was uh, simply the idea that that Phil was a white college kid, and and both Otis and Phil understood that that had. Um, that could work to both of their advantages, right? At any rate, so what Otis did was, I mean, he, he 
Bill was complaining to him about the fact that he'd, he'd, he'd gone to his father and asked his father to, if he could make up the difference in his, in his tuition. It's, it's interesting when we talk about this. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about uh, $50,000 a semester here. I, I think the tuition at Mercer University was something like was something like three or four hundred dollars. I think it was two hundred. Uh, you, know, you say in the book, maybe it was two. Yeah, right. Two hundred dollars for the semester, right? Um, I remember checking that with with, with with Mercer at one point. At any rate, um, Otis listened to all of this and he left. And he said he'd be back. He had some stuff he had to do, um, and he came back later that day with, as as Bill describes, was very very sort of um, in a picturesque manner with this with a, a paper bag. And the paper bag was filled with bills and coins. And um, what Otis had done was he'd basically gone around and hit on everybody that he knew um, for what I describe as the Bill Walden College Fund. And he sort of put it on the he put it on the table and he said, Here, I think I think this is gonna be enough. And uh, as I say, Bill was just completely taken aback by this. I mean, it was one of the points in their relationship where the 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 the, the power balance shifted dramatically um, because uh, from Phil's point of view, you know, and it always up until then, it had always him, been him giving money to Otis for lunch or for gas or for whatever. And, you know, and Otis constantly sort of hitting on him for it and like this. And uh, Otis's words, as Phil described it, and Phil may have, have dramatized this a little bit, was, you know, with Otis put the, put the money down there and he said, you know, I think it's all here. And, and he says, if we, you know, if we're going to be a success, you're going to need that education was the idea. And um, the important part of it was, as I say this, there is this one of the things that uh, white Southerners um, have long, one, one of the parts of their sensibility uh, um, has been this idea of the splendid gesture. Um, anybody who's, who's ever followed uh, accounts of, of, of the South in, in, in the 19th century of this whole cavalier sort of society that they, they thought they were living in, um, or uh, you know, accounts of, of the South in the Civil War, um, this idea of these gestures that, that, that somehow, you know, sort of like uh, stop, stop time that, that, that somehow, you know, that's what this was for Phil. And um, I think it, 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 it's, it, it sealed an aspect of their relationship. I think that um, when I think about it, it was it was something I think Otis knew exactly what he was doing is the other thing I would say. It was not some impulsive gesture on Otis's part. It was, here was an opportunity to be, um, to, uh, to, to, to change the dynamic of his relationship with Phil. And one of the things that I, I, I would say about Otis in general, it's very hard in the whole course of his career to uh, find opportunities that he failed to take advantage of. Uh, when they were presented almost every time, there are a couple of celebrated instances, maybe when they didn't, but uh, when an opportunity presented himself, he, he seemed to have an uncanny ability to recognize it and then to capitalize on it. Absolutely. And there was another opportunity uh, that came along in his relationship with the Waldens a few years later after Phil had been drafted to the army and their father, CB, who had initially been a typical unreconstructed racist of his generation yep. and, yep. and, you know, dropping the N word all the time and, and disapproving of his son's involvement with, with this music and these people. Um, but then, you know, CB was going to take over the business because he could see that there was money to be made. Then he has a stroke. The younger brother is plucked out of his freshman year at college at, to take right. this over with no idea what he's doing. And in short order manages to run, this agency into the ground and calls Otis and tells him the bad news, you know, that he's in the hole, he owes money. Yeah. And, and Otis runs down there and saves the, the day. I mean, and, and there's this, this moment when um, Otis talks to Alan, gets, assesses the situation and decides that they need CB who's been flat on his back recovering from his stroke. And Otis approaches mm -hmm. him, uh, according to Alan, his father lit up when Otis told him simply, Pops, we need you. 
And the next morning, CB got up, got dressed for the first time in six months and accompanied his son to the office. And so uh, th- this is the second time Otis has, has made a sort of splendid gesture and helped the Walden family to help him. And then I, right. I, the, the third thing I want to tie in is that the s- wisdom of this, the shrewdness of Otis's decision, because this isn't just adding on some parasites that are going to take 20% of his income away. Right. This is something that helps him navigate the situation in Macon, and C.B. Walden becomes essential to this when Otis gets into a gunfight under uh, yes. return from tour. So tell us about this situation and how C.B. saved the day. Well, uh, just a couple of words about C.B., because he, too, is one of the, along with Joe Golkin, um the the, the, the the adults in this story or the ostensible adults in this story are, are some of the most interesting people because uh, I'll you know have to remind people we're not you know we're talking about Otis at the age of 21 or 22 he's barely an adult Bill is barely an adult um, CB though seems to have had this extraordinary uh, for lack of a better term racial conversion experience um, uh, and becomes uh, a, a genuinely uh, paternal presence in, in Otis's life. Now, Otis had his own father, and I'm not beginning to suggest that, that CB um, re- replaced um, uh, Otis's father was a reverend by this point, replaced the Reverend Redding in Otis's life. That, 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 that would be a, an overstatement. But um, CB became this person that Otis felt he could rely on um, uh, to navigate, especially the world of Macon, but um, uh, business in general, I guess, is a, is a better way to put it. It's a little ironic because uh, CB himself was a clothing salesman, um, very lower middle class, um, did not make a lot of money. The, the family struggled uh, financially uh, all the time that, that, that Bill and his brother um, were growing up, uh, his brother Alan. But um, nevertheless, uh, uh, CB was also a, a, a white man, uh, um, you know, in 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 the in the, uh, in the in the social structure of Macon, and therefore, um, and, and a very gregarious character. He was a big big drinker, a big uh, a big schmoozer. Um, so he had, you know, he had sort of um, uh, ingratiating ingratiated himself with the whole sort of local power structure of, of Macon, Georgia, by virtue of drinking with these people and teasing these people and, you know, this sort of thing. Anyway, um, Otis came back from a, uh, from a tour um, in uh, 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 around, uh, for some reason, he had a couple of days off around the 4th of July in uh, 1964, this was. Uh, Phil has, has left for, um, for Germany. Alan is, is and CB are running the agency. Bill comes back and uh, excuse me, Otis comes back and um, one of the, the, the aspects of, of Otis, there was this sort of devotional strain in him um, and he uh, had stayed very close with the, the sort of friends uh, and running partners that he had grown up with um, uh, in, in Macon uh, in, the, in the housing projects there and, and in this, this, this rural community called Bellevue that he, that he lived in for a while. And so when he would come back to town, he would get together with his old friends. Um, he was, Lord knows, in a completely different place uh, in his life than they were in their, in their lives. But he, he came back to town around the 4th of July, and one of his, one of his friends had gotten, um, uh, who was a, 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 a bootlegger. He, um, you know, he, he's, the, 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 the bootleg trade was sort of like the drug trade of, of that time. Um, in a place like Macon, and he had gotten into an altercation with another bootlegger uh, that it, uh, this, this, um, the other guy had, had pistol whipped him, and this required uh, retribution. And so um, Otis was enlisted to basically um, join this posse, you know, of of of, of uh, young adults. I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, the circumstances are sort of comical in, in one sense, in that uh, they all pile into Otis's Cadillac, you know, which is one of the most obtrusive cars in, in Macon. It's, it's not like anybody's going to mistake it for, 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 for something else. And they drive over to um, uh, the, the house where this other bootlegger lived, and this gunfight erupts. And um, 
both uh, the bootlegger and his father are wounded, the bootlegger quite seriously. And um, the police arrive and they figure out what's happened and they arrest Otis and uh, along with everybody else. And as this thing makes its way through the, the court system in, in, in Macon, um, they're eventually charged with attempted murder. Um, and the sort of main figure in all of this, um, uh, Otis, one of Otis's closest friends, who was a fellow named Sylvester Huckabee, uh, everybody called him Huck. Uh, Huck was a career criminal, um, proudly so. Uh, he had done time in a, in, in, in a penitentiary in California when he went out there. Um, and uh, Huck was um, sort of served as Otis's bodyguard, uh, in, in, in a matter of speaking, um, accompanied Otis on the road sometimes. Um, it was always problematic because he did things like steal television sets from motels and, and that sort of thing, you know. But um, what wound up happening was uh, CB was able to, I guess you could say, call on his contacts in the, uh, in the police and, and uh, district attorney's office in Macon to come up with a, a, a kind of arrangement whereby Huck would plead guilty to the charges of um, attempted or not attempted murder to reduce charges. I think it was some ridiculous charge like menacing with a pistol or something like that. I've, I've forgotten what the actual term is. Um, and Otis basically got off scot-free as a result of this. But there were two things that were, uh, I guess, most significant about this. One was simply the fact that um, it was a reminder of, uh, of how vulnerable he remained. Um, when this happened, he wasn't a, 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 an aspiring recording star. When this happened in Macon, he was another black man who could very well have wound up in the penitentiary. Um, but the other thing about it that's, that's, that's maybe more important, at least according to his wife, Velma, was that this was a kind of transformative experience for Otis. He realized that um, he came very close to losing everything that he had that he had built in the last couple of years. And Zelma always described Otis when in, in his in his late adolescence and early adulthood as, as, as kind of wild, um, and he was in this sense. He was a partier, he was a carouser, and he was um, all of this. And um, something in at this point in her estimation, and I think it makes sense given his behavior going forward, he suddenly realized, no, you know, if, if, if I'm going to do this, um, uh, that is to say his career, if I'm going to be the sort of success I want to be, um, I, can't, I, I, I can't indulge my friends this way. I can't indulge that whole side of my life. Um, it may seem inauthentic that I'm walking away from it, but I can't afford to do that. I have a wife, I have a family, and I have a career. And he suddenly, I mean, in Zelma's estimation, he just sort of buckled down at that point. And in, in many ways was, was, was much more focused on, on what he needed to do in the aftermath of this whole thing. And that, I think, says a lot about Otis's Redding's character and his ability to grow and assess situations uh, that made him such a remarkable success and a remarkable person. And you see this dichotomy and you talk about it in the book you talk about the the difference between street and decency um and that every young black person especially black men had to navigate this and that otis had lived in both worlds as he had to growing up in the rough side of macon Mm -hmm. uh but but he has this brush with disaster realizes he's comes so close to losing everything, changes his ways, never looks back. And, you know, as even in the news today, as we see so many young rappers uh, falling quickly and, and ensnared in the, in the judicial system in the 21st century, you know, and sure. you know, all the way Jam Master Jay suffers this at the end of his career and, and the early part of the 21st century. And Otis, you know, sees the situation changes and, and avoids that fate. And now it's time for another song. We pushed it back a little bit. I want to play uh, Otis's collaboration with Jerry Butler called I've Been Loving You Too Long. Too long To stop now 
And that was I've Been Loving You Too Long, which uh, you call a culmination of a long line of impassioned 12-8 ballads that Otis had recorded his debut. Talk about that song and, and how it, to me, it's the perfect illustration of the way Otis worked as a songwriter in the early days, where he essentially was sort of like Jimmy Rogers, a great country artist, that he didn't quite, well, he did plagiarize, <laughs> serial plagiarist, oh, yeah. but... Yeah. But uh, how how was Otis putting his songs together at this point? Because this was a fragment that Jerry Butler had, who was a su- successful soul singer, uh, that he couldn't finish. But Otis manages to make not just a song out of it, but a hit song out of it. Sure. Well, um, Otis's great uh, sort of self-confessed weakness, as, as he well, I guess we'll put it this way. Um, we take for granted now for the most part that, that singers often write their own songs, often, often produce their own material. But of course, for a very long time, that was, that, that was hardly the case in the folk tradition, um, a little bit in the country tradition, uh, a bit in the blues tradition, this was true, but it was by no means given that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, uh, an R and B singer say was going to write his or her own, own material. Um, in Otis's case, I think that the reason that he, that he moved so strongly in that direction was, first of all, a, a certain desire to, um, you know, to, to just basically sort of control his own career. Um, but also he became aware fairly early on that there were significant royalties to be gained from from uh, recording your own material. And as a sidelight to that, one of the things that, that needs to be said about um, Stax and also the Waltons was that. Otis was not an example of uh, the, the, the countless black performers who were ripped off by their record companies or their managers. Um, his relationship with the Waldens, they, they took a hefty cut of everything that he did. Um, but that was, uh, uh, that was, um, if anything, uh, you know, standard in, 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 in that aspect of the music business. Stax, on the other hand, paid its, its artists scrupulously. Uh, Jim Stewart had previously been a bank officer and he, he brought that kind of, he brought that standard of accounting to, uh, to, to, to the way he ran his record label. Um, but at any rate, uh, but Otis is, so Otis sort of became a songwriter um, over the, uh, over the course of his career, he did not begin by one, uh, he, he did he not begin as one. Um, and he be- began writing the way most people began writing. They steal from the stuff that they like. They, uh, if, if, if there's a song that they like, they, they sort of like move a few things around in it and write some new words for it. And they say, oh, this is mine. And, and everybody does that. Uh, Lennon and McCartney did that. Dylan is still doing that. Right? <laughs> so anyway, uh, 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 within the, the, the whole context of songwriting, though, um, Otis, because of his lack of, of much education, um, because he was aware, having now moved out into the world of his diction, of his, um, of, of that, that, you know, his whole sort of, um, uh, there was, uh, in terms of his whole uh, articulation was, was very Southern and was sort of country. And he was, um, he was inhibited about writing lyrics. Um, so the main thing he got from, from, and, and, and this, this stayed until almost the very end of his career. It, that was the big struggle for him was, was how to, how to write interesting lyrics. Um, and in this case, Jerry Wexler, uh, excuse me, Jerry Butler, um, supplied him with a verse, uh, a very well-written verse. Um, we don't know how much of the tune was actually there. Um, I suspect that none of the arrangement was there. Um, and what Otis did was he took this, uh, this, this fragment of a song that Butler showed him and he wrote a, uh, additional verses and, um, he then drew on, um, one of the most extraordinary aspects of his talent, um, which was his abilities as an arranger. Um, now earlier, earlier I said that, that, uh, I, w- I was singing the praises of Booker T and the MGs, um, as a rhythm section and so on and so forth. But I think what a lot of people don't fully understand is that the other famous component of the stack sound, as we think of it, and then, uh, the two components of the stack sound was this incredibly funky, incredibly solid rhythm section 
and then these these um, th this horn section, which provided uh, the sort of atmospherics on these arrangements. Um, Otis is is really the 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 and the arranger is the creator of the Stax horn sound. Um, you can you can listen to Stax records before Otis got there and Stax records after Otis got there, and 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 the difference is is very clear. And what Otis would do was and and this is this is a talent that um, uh, he probably observed in James Brown because he toured with Brown for a while and, and got to see the way Brown ran his band. Um, Otis would, would literally stand in front of the horn section, sing them their lines. Um, they would play them back. Uh, he would then, uh, in, you know, uh, edit what they were doing, refine what they were doing. Um, there's a wonderful quote um, from uh, Wayne Jackson, who was the, the, the trumpeter in the Stax horn section, which is describing how Otis, you know, he'd just get in your face and, and, and he would sing these lines to you until you thought you were going to come out of your shoes. Was the way was the way Jackson put it, and so um, uh, I've been loving you too long. Is 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 the you know is is just one of the great high points of the Stax horn sound, um, and it's it's the record on which all of the components of Otis and and the band and the horn section sort of come together, and. What's 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 nice about it is um, it was also his first really big R&B hit. Um, and uh, so it was affirmed by commercial success. Um, it was also a, a song that did cross over onto the onto the pop charts. It was not a huge hit on the pop charts, but it it was on the pop charts. It established him um, and it, it, it then became the sort of. Um, uh, as I said, the sort of the, the signature of his ballad style. It, it is, it is, it's, it's, it, it's his greatest ballad in that way. Um, and it, it established him at the beginning of uh, 1965 or in the middle of 1965, rather, as, um, as, as, as a real recording star for the first time. Yeah. And it's a, it's a key point in his evolution. And, and I, I'm going to have to put you on the spot here since we've, enjoy this conversation so much and clearly we're not going to finish the Otis Redding story. So I hope you can come back and, and <laughs> do a second part and, uh, and, and finish this up. But to finish this episode, I want to build up to the song respect, which is another mm -hmm. song that Otis took someone else's ideas as a starting point. In this case, uh, Sylvester Huckabee, who ironically was the guy who he got no, into the no, gunfight with, or uh, the two no, of them. Not Huck, not uh, Huck. It was Speedo Sims. Ah, who, who originally, who originally you're correct. sort of you're correct. had, had uh, Huckabee, respect. Yeah. Huckabee gave him the idea for a different song, and I'm blanking on that. Um, but Speedo Sims was his driver after his brother took that position. And so this song, Respect, starts with Speedo, who's a chronically unfaithful wife while he's out on the road with Otis. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and that's not a problem Otis had because his wife Zelda, uh, and he described sort of how they navigated that relationship because Otis was young, fueled with testosterone, beautiful, charismatic, and a star. And so women were throwing themselves at him. Somebody that was on tour with him describes it as they would be lined up in his hotel suite like they were at a doctor's office waiting their turn. Right. Uh, and Zelma has the the perspective to recognize, you know, as long as he didn't bring anything home and he treated me with respect, I didn't want to know. Otis keeps it discreet. The press at that time, such as it was, honored that, you know, and, and, and there was sort of a wall sure. of a conspiracy of science, si silence on the part of the men in the business to keep that stuff down. Uh, and then Zelma, there's a great quote from Zelma about how, why her reasoning be between behind being faithful to him while he was on the road you know, uh, I never, ever run around on him. Never thought of it. Goodness. Right. Living better than I ever lived in my life, and I'm just not letting nobody talk me out the door. I might be a fool, but I'm not that big a fool. And right. to, to me... That's classic uh, Zelda, by the way. Yeah. And and the fact that the Redding family has stayed together, she's still the matriarch of the clan, and guarded his legacy and 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 stayed aligned with the Walden family there in Macon, I think speaks to Otis's wisdom in picking his allies and his partners. And this is a pattern of that goes all the way through his short life. Um, mm -hmm. 
even even his alliances, you know, on the streets with the Huckabee brothers and others, you know, he was always able to com- command this loyalty and find people that were worthy of that loyalty. So he he didn't personally live uh, the the life that Speedo did when when he's away and his wife's cheating on him. But that's the genesis of the song Respect. And so sure. let's hear let's hear uh, Otis Redding's original version of Respect. Otis's Otis Redding's song "Respect," which is going to be stolen by uh, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. Not stolen, but Otis described it as stolen. That girl done took my song. So, talk about that right. song and the sexual politics of it a little bit. Well, first of all, you know, uh, Otis. What's so interesting about "Respect" is you, and it's exactly appropriate that you should be talking about Zelma's situation. Um, respect as as Otis wrote it and sang it is him putting himself in the in the position of Zelma essentially which is which is kind of interesting um he's pretending that he, what he's basically delivering is 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 uh, uh in the song is the message that 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 Zelma was sort of delivering to him which is that you know do what you want but um you know pay me pay me respect in this way and um so in, you know in Otis's case um, it's, 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 it's an extraordinarily powerful groove song, obviously. Um, uh, just the, 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 the rhythmic dynamics of it, the force of it, uh, the, the force of his performance of it, um, is, is kind of overwhelming in, in that sense. And, um, but of course what, what then wound up happening, and it, and it, it too was one of what was one of the three big hits um, big R&B hits, as a top ten R&B hits that he released in in 1965 that established him as as uh, as a full fledged recording star. If uh, um, I've been loving you too long is the ballad. This is this this is the dance song that did it in that way. And um, what then wound up happening was that uh, uh, everybody recognized it was it was a great song, and I, and I think that Otis probably wrote most of the words to it. I think what he took from Speedo was, was probably again, a verse and an idea, uh, you know, uh, in that sense. Um, I, I seriously doubt that Speedo wrote most of the music and, and Speedo said to me at any rate as much that he said, you know, it, it didn't sound anything like, uh, what, 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 what the record sounded like his song didn't sound anything like what the record sounded like. Um, but the, the, the incredible thing that then happens with, with respect is um, Aretha uh, develops this amazing ar- ar- arrangement of it, uh, and um, again transforms the, the 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 sexual politics of the song. Simply having a woman deliver that message in the way that she did was 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 the start. Um, the fact that the the woman who delivered the message was Aretha and was able to do it um, with, with with that that incomparable voice. Um, and in addition to that, uh, Aretha, of course, like Otis, was one of the great arrangers um, of, of her era uh, in R&B. And the arrangement that she wrote for Respect, which uh, Otis's, Otis's version does not have the uh, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, tell you what it means to me, and that incredible sort of, sort of um, uh, added section, essentially. Um, and Aretha turned it into this, uh, by, by putting it in a woman's voice, turned it into a, a, a kind of universal statement that um, not only applied, of course, to all, uh, uh, to, to all women, um, uh, but in some ways became a, um, something of a civil rights anthem um, as well, because it's, 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 uh, it's a plea for just basic human dignity. Um, I don't think Otis Otis's version quite quite brought that out. Otis's version was much more, uh, again, a, a form of romantic comedy. I guess is the way I would describe it. Uh, Aretha, as she as she was capable of doing in so many circumstances, added this element of transcendence to it. And of course, that was that was her genius. Absolutely. And in a sequel, presuming you're going to come back and, and finish this out, I want to talk about. Uh, 
the times Otis covered, because Otis did successful covers sure. of Motown, the Stones, even the Beatles, as as well as as uh, Bing Crosby. And so we'll talk yeah. about that in part two. And Otis's tours of England, his breakthrough at Monterey Pop, his breakthrough with uh, a massive white audience, uh, and his tragic death. So this has been Jonathan Gould, author of Otis Redding and Unfinished Life. And uh, we'll see you next time, Jonathan. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week for the conclusion of Nate's conversation with author Jonathan Gould about Otis Redding. Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life by Jonathan Gould is available from Crown Archetype and can be found wherever fine books are sold.